0: I'm Bonnie Glaser, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing trade tensions between the United States and China. We're going to dissect the demands of each side and explore the feasibility of a compromise. In recent weeks, trade delegations from the United States and China, composed of high-level government officials, have held negotiations both in Beijing and Washington trade demands on each side cover the spectrum of the economic relationship and have led to a volatile back and forth between the two countries. Fears of a trade war persist, but there's still hope of a deal. To discuss the U.S.-China trade relationship, I'm joined by Dan Rosen, Dan is a founding partner of Rhodium Group and a longtime observer of China's economy and U.S.-China economic relations. He's also an adjunct associate professor at Columbia University, and he's affiliated with a number of U.S. think tanks, including CSIS, where he is a senior associate with the Freeman Chair in China Studies. Dan previously served as Senior Advisor for International Economic Policy at the White House National Economic Council and the National Security Council. Dan, thanks for joining us today.
1: Great pleasure to be with you, Bonnie.
0: So I really want to dive into this. How has the Trump administration's approach to the trade relationship with China differed from past administrations? Obviously, it seems very adversarial in the the public realm, but is the core of the trade relationship and the policy really a significant departure from the past?
1: You know, I, I think it actually is very significantly different than past policy. The most notable thing is that it is unconstrained by a sense of strategic uh, equities and assets of the United States. That is to say that trade has had a multifunctional role for us in the past. It helped to underpin alliances uh, and geo-strategic uh, uh, interests of the United States all around the world. And now it is being treated um, almost, you know, by itself as a singular objective to change trade balances with countries large and small around the world, regardless of the implications for our longstanding uh, security and political arrangements. So that sort of unbounded ability of this White House to reach in and do what it wants with trade um, is really quite different than what we've seen for, you know, living memory.
0: So the president obviously has, as you say, Attach priority to uh, reducing or eliminating bilateral trade imbalances. Um, he claims these are are harmful to U.S. interests. Can you explain why bilateral trade imbalances are or are not important? Should this be a priority?
1: You know, this is one of those top the, those topics on which economists have sort of a set response (laughs) that they've practiced for decades and decades and decades. And the current moment has caused the profession to sort of think again about it. The standard traditional answer is that you, of course, run a personal deficit with your grocery store because they don't pay you, you pay them. And you run a personal surplus with your employer because they pay you, uh, you don't pay them. Um, But you shouldn't look at either of those as being good or bad per se. You have to look at your overall position when you balance your checking account each month and sort of see how you're doing. In the same way economists would say that just because the United States is importing from China doesn't mean on the whole globally uh, those imports uh, could be very, very valuable to the U.S. It could be advantageous for a country to have a, a bilateral deficit, deficits. In fact, you know, just thinking about it, you really wouldn't expect any country to be perfectly balanced with um, any one country. It probably would always be a mix um, of the two. Um, So the difference when it comes to China is that the president is now focusing uh, tremendously on the single U.S. deficit the U.S. has with the People's Republic of China. And the question is, is that reasonable in this case? Whereas economists traditionally wouldn't like that and still don't. The fact is that our deficit with China is so gargantuan compared to all the others that we have with individual countries and so persistent that looking at this one trade, uh, bilateral trade deficit, is almost tantamount to looking at the overall American external position. Um, And so you can't really deal with the overall American global balance, which economists do accept there's a case to be concerned about if it's too large for too long, without looking at the role of China. Um, in that global position, I think. So that would be the reasonable way to approach this topic. Now, the administration's particular ideas about why we have that bilateral deficit um, and how to affect it in the direction that they desire um, are not entirely clear um, and could use quite a bit of uh, work, in my opinion.
0: In the December... 2017 national security strategy, China was labeled a strategic competitor, a rival, and a revisionist power. So is the US, under, the, under President Trump, uh, the approach to trade, is it really about trade? Or is this about a, uh, in the broader strategic competition that the United States is now engaging with China in?
1: So it could be either or, or it could be both. And I think the answer is that it is both, that for a nation such as the United States with the largest economy in the world, our trade dynamics are a reflection of our economic health, and our economic health is deeply, deeply intertwined both with our political stability and the the satisfaction of our citizens and their willingness to entertain radical political candidates and theories, right, which can lead one down all sorts of um, worrisome paths, that economic dynamism is also the wellspring of our national security ultimately. And there are certainly elements of our economy which are particularly Uh, intertwined with um, our uh, competitiveness as a military power, uh, where communication technologies, propulsion technologies, energy systems are very much um, going to shape the relative um, strength of uh, American uh, military power out into the future. So we must say that much of the trade policy and economic policy action being directed toward China today, is truly uh, motivated by uh, economic interests of the country and economic debates and uh, concerns that we have. We must also say um, that those um, concerns about the relationship between the economy and the military capability of the country um, are also a first-order consideration and really, I think what's most extraordinary about the new national security strategy that we um, have had since last December is that it takes this next step forward to truly integrating those two domains. Uh, it takes a whole-of-society approach to thinking about our security as a nation, which is uh, definitely a departure from um, prior uh, prior doctrine, where. Uh, economics and security were treated as fairly distinct um, aspects uh, of our uh, of our nation.
0: So, I want to ask a few specific things about the U.S. demands and the Chinese demands, and get your assessment as to how serious these problems are, and how maybe how they they should be addressed. So, for example, we've been talking with China about intellectual property protection for a long time. And, and the United States um, has asked the Chinese government to stop what they alleges forced technology transfers and other practices uh, to acquire U.S. Intelli- intellectual property in, uh, in illicit ways. So can you explain how China has actually compelled American companies to hand over their intellectual property? Obviously, Beijing has denied that it's doing this.
1: Very, very complicated question and a very important one and a good one. And there are many elements to this. There are things that have taken place that are just purely criminal. Companies um, uh, actively practicing industrial espionage against their competitors to try to uh, obtain their seed technologies, their uh, software, their other intellectual property. Um, we know these things. They've been litigated through court systems both in China and the United States. So this is part of the, the reality um, that we've had. Now, uh, economists also uh, point to uh, the general tendency in history for less developed countries to have um softer enforcement of intellectual property protection shall we say than more advanced economies do but the theories at the heart of the administration's formal case against china as seen in the 301 action are more specific and are different than that sort of general lax attitude about ipr protection and i want to talk about a couple elements in particular they're really do sort of make the point, obviously, that there's an issue here. I I think the most striking is that China maintains and enforces an extensive, 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 almost a predominant array of joint venture requirements. So in order to do business in China, foreign firms in many, many cases, if not most, have to enter into a partnership with a Chinese firm. Now. The uh, Chinese side will often say, well, these partnerships are voluntary. The firm doesn't have to come to China. They could stay home. But of course, in most segments, if a company chooses not to be present to compete for the biggest share of new demand growth in the world economy, then it might as well just shut its doors and go out of business. So there's a compelling uh, desire and need, really, necessity for firms to be present in the Chinese marketplace. And at the same time, they're going to be required to enter into partnership with firms that may well be their competitors already today, if not today, then in the very near future. So those joint venture requirements are really sort of a prima facie problem, I think, because they always open the door to uh, a transfer of technology, of know-how that firms might very well not prefer to to do if they had the choice. Another element that goes alongside that, whether a, through a joint venture or when there's not a joint venture, uh, being uh, a form being used for an invest uh, an investment, foreign firms uh, as Chinese are almost always required, especially when they're building something, constructing something, introducing a new product, to present technical information on those products, on those activities to design institutes in China, which are nominally responsible to make sure that the designs are safe, that they comply with Chinese technical standards for building and construction, engineering and things like that. But all too often it has been the case that after technical information has been provided to these design institutes, those design institutes have been, shall we say, careless uh, with that information and permitted it to um, be shared with uh, other firms, Chinese firms, in fact. Um, I've personally looked at dozens and dozens of instances of this uh, to my satisfaction that this has been an a, a all too common uh, a phenomenon in China in the decades past Probably becoming a little bit less of an issue these days as firms are getting even more protective of their intellectual property, including Chinese companies. But it has and continues to be an example of the kind of problem which has confronted foreign investors in China on the intellectual property side. Uh, One other thing I should mention as well, of course, and that is the reality of selective approvals, that unlike market economies such as the United States, where um, other than the security screening that we do at the border for national security issues, once, once it's clear there's not a national security issue involved any company from any country in the world can invest in the United States and do business here without asking for special permission or special favor from governments to approve that, with the exception of a handful of sectors, such as banking and electric power, where there are special considerations um, around how our economies work. But in the overwhelming number of cases, there's no approvals necessary. In China, there's almost always an approval required A foreign investor needs an approval. If it's not for the joint venture requirements, then it's for other mundane um, aspects that licenses are required for in order to operate in China. And that creates an opportunity uh, for local officials to say no. And that creates a circumstance in which there's always the risk of some kind of coercion or compulsion to do things, uh, whether it's transferring technology uh, or undertaking other non-commercial Um, actions in order to secure the approvals that really should just be a matter of notification nowadays um, and not a question of whether you'll get a yes or no.
0: So there's a plan in China, which much talked about uh, uh, among experts and and written about, that's called Made in China 2025, uh, and often described as intended to make China into a manufacturing powerhouse, into cutting edge technology, and this is obviously robotics, semiconductors, electric vehicles, um, and and other, really advanced technologies. So, you know, the Chinese claim that many countries have similar industrial plans, and there's really nothing unusual or illegal about this plan, and that it fits very well within their economic development model, which, of course, is state-run capitalism. Uh, So subsidizing industries uh, is seen as, uh, as acceptable, and other countries, of course, have done this. So the United States has asked China to halt these subsidies and has expressed a lot of concern about made in China 2025. So who's right?
1: Well, you um, you noted, Bonnie, that China claims that many countries have similar industrial plans. I would observe that human beings and bananas share about 60% the same DNA. So in a sense, Beijing is right that other countries have had industrial plans as well. But the similarities, I think, are less important than the differences in this case. The difference that strikes most people uh, uh, most is that Made in China 2025 has set preconceived government-engineered goals for reshaping market shares in all of the industries it focuses on reshaping market share according to nationality of the companies involved. That is to say that both domestically and for the international market, there are targets that have been embedded in this plan, this uh, approach to uh, industrial policy for how much market share Chinese firms should have versus non-Chinese firms. And that kind of, I would call it, you know, engineering, government, engineering of outcomes in the marketplace, not just goals for improvement of technology levels, but a reshaping of what the economy looks like based on nationality, is couldn't be more different than how other countries um, have approached uh, industrial policy objectives um, to the extent that there's a similarity between what China's doing here and what other countries have done. Now of course, other countries might have industrial policies which are military industrial policies to make sure that they have an adequacy of access for their uh, defense uh, community to critical technologies and inputs. That's not what we're talking about here. And that's not what Made in China 2025 is uh, nominally about. It's supposed to be a broad marketplace industrial policy design. And um, uh, in that regard, um, this is not the same as what Germany is doing or what the U.S. has done or really what anybody else has done out there, in, uh, in a, let alone the world's second largest economy. So I think the U.S. has no choice but to push back on uh, a policy that sets out to reshape the way the global economy works uh, around government-set designs. for multiple reasons. One reason is that there's no assurance whatsoever that one of the elements of Chinese planning is fairness for other countries. (laughs) That's just not something that um, is part of uh, the industrial policy uh, function uh, in Beijing today. And another, just as, to me, um, worrisome element here, is that based on Chinese past efforts at industrial policy planning, there's a pretty high likelihood that this is not gonna work out as efficiently as planners hope. After all, if we look at the motivation for the planning today, it's because of the problems arising from China's industrial planning yesterday. The amount of overcapacity, industry after industry, and dislocation of workers and capital, bad debt that's built up, Due to those government interventions in the past is a first order uh, worry and concern, uh, not of course, just for Washington and other advanced economy governments, but for china itself it 's um, a great risk to china 's outlook, in fact, whether it will be able to manage the legacy of past industrial policy planning so I think there's you know uh, a reasonable reason uh, for all of us to be concerned and to uh, insist on, um, uh, you know, a number of conversations we need to have about what the consequences of, of policies like this are likely to be for for others. You know, as a, an American philosopher from two centuries back once said China's, or to paraphrase, China's freedom to swing its fist stops where our noses begin. And I think there's um, compelling reason to be concerned about whether there's too much overlap between China's desires to have strong industries and uh, our uh, right and uh, uh, need to make sure that that doesn't impinge on our welfare.
0: China, of course, has its own set of demands, um, and, and and maybe you could comment briefly on whether you think any of them uh, are reasonable. You know, for example, the Chinese have. Uh, been asking the U.S. for a long time to lift the restrictions that were imposed in June 4th, 1989, often referred to as the Tiananmen massacre. Uh, these restrictions on high-tech exports uh, uh, to China, and they've claimed that this would reduce the trade deficit if uh, if these were lifted. The Chinese have been demanding uh, market economy status in the in the World Trade Organization, and they've also asked for. Uh, essentially equal treatment for Chinese uh, investment uh, to that of other countries. And Beijing is, I think, rightfully concerned that the United States is going to be putting greater uh, restrictions on uh, on investment. So um, what of these or, or other demands that the Chinese are making do you think are reasonable?
1: So quite a few of the things you just mentioned are not just being demanded or requested of the United States from China, but are um, important uh, asks from all around the world, because American policy presently is so unilateral and so discordant with the norms of international behavior and uh, negotiating uh, um, approaches that we have designed and developed and handmaidened over the past 70 or 80 years. Um, that uh, it has, you know, created risk for everyone pretty much out there, the threats that we're making in order to um, uh, promote our interests. So some of what China is insisting upon, that the United States look after its own WTO obligations to other countries, including China, um, are, I dare say, reasonable and important uh, for them to be making and for others to be making as well. Some of the things that China is asking for, most of them, in fact, I would say, are not WTO controlled or um, assured to them under any other international code or or undertaking the United States has entered into. For example, that the U.S. should agree to open up export, uh, reduce export controls on Uh, potentially dual use or military relevant technologies uh, to China uh, in order to reduce the trade imbalance between the two countries. Uh, No country um, uh, can be told that uh, it it, um, uh, doesn't have the right to employ national security controls on its trade, either inbound or outbound. So um, that's something China's been asking for for 25 years or so now, um, but it's certainly not something that um, China can uh, can claim to have a right to under any, any international agreement. Likewise, on the direct investment side, I think it's ironic um, that China has made so much of the question of investment market access rights for Chinese firms in the United States. When you look at the pattern of Chinese FDI here in the U.S. or in the European Union where new restrictions on Chinese investment are also being developed as we speak, what's most remarkable is just how rapidly and broadly that investment has grown. There's been um, really uh, very little resistance to Chinese investment in the OECD economies over the past decade as it's taken off. So um, China was really getting a very good deal. And that is in an area where, once again, there is no international regime for direct investment screening. That's not covered by the WTO uh, or by any other regime. Uh, We've tried a couple times over the years to create a multilateral uh, investment uh, regime um, without success. And so um, that generally permissive uh, uh, environment China's found for FDI abroad um, is despite not having uh, some kind of legal obligation, not not because of it. Things are changing on that front um, because um, of concerns over Chinese intentions uh, and the national security implications of, of Chinese FDI, again, not as a commercial matter um, per se. So that leaves a few things, Uh, most importantly, market economy status at the WTO where China does have a more solid legal standing to say that the United States and other uh, WTO member economies have made a commitment to cease using a special regime for purposes of calculating anti-dumping duties. On imports from China, when China entered the WTO, um, no country agreed to generally define China as a market economy for purposes of you know uh, of of all um, aspects of our inter- economic interaction together. The market economy status issue um, that China does have uh, uh, standing to kind of complain about has only to do with the with the calculation of anti-dumping duties. So on that one, they have a case, although I would have to say this too, Bonnie. Yes, they um, can point to the outcome of the negotiations to uh, uh, get China into the WTO uh, almost two decades ago. But on the other hand, is it really in China's interest to insist on a standing that is only going to poison sentiment in advanced economies as to whether the WTO itself can be effective at managing concerns about what it means to trade and invest and interact with China. Um, uh, at the end of the day, um, countries can always take, sort of, choose not to comply with an obligation, including at WTO, and they would have to, you know, pay the piper accordingly, which in WTO traditions would mean that the country that wasn't getting something that it was due had the right to retaliate or withhold some benefit reciprocally. Um, But I'm not sure that would be in China's interest on this topic um, as well. After all, um, there's a lot more that advanced economies could be doing <clears throat> to use WTO tools more aggressively to challenge the subsidization of uh, prices going into manufacturing Chinese goods that then show up in our market so um, they could win they, they they have a more of a case um, to argue this issue of market economy status in the near term, but I think in the medium term and beyond that would just uh, bring um, Uh, different strategies uh, to the fore, as in fact, um, we've already seen from the European Union, uh, which resolved the question of market economy status by replacing the old non-compliant regime they had for China with a new one, which is arguably able to stand up to WTO dispute uh, resolution.
0: So U.S.-Chinese negotiations are ongoing. And my last question is essentially, is is a trade deal possible? What would it look like? Is it is it possible that both sides come out of this with a win? So what does success look like? And then, of course, the other question is, what does failure look like? And what would be the impact of failure, not only in the U.S.-China trade relationship, but also on other economies in the world?
1: Well, so uh, interesting times to be a China economist, isn't it Um, very hard to say exactly where any of this is going to come out? It's entirely possible to me that the outcome of the current uh, era of uh, brinksmanship threats on one another in the trade realm could be some big transactional package of promises just to import a bunch more American stuff uh, in China, something like that. I don't think that that sort of a deal would actually be um, uh, enough to provide a solid foundation under the relationship uh, for the years ahead. I think for an outcome to provide a sustainable foundation for the relationship, what it needs to do is define a convergent endpoint for our two economies. What I mean by that is that over the past four decades uh, of – Uh, strong and effective US-China economic relations, there was a working assumption in Washington that we may not like how long it's taking, but ultimately China intended to evolve its economic regimes in the direction of those that we employ in the advanced economies. For example, uh, a financial system which Uh, ensures that the state doesn't determine which industries are able to access credit and lending, but rather the marketplace decides how how lending flows and at what price ultimately. Likewise, in the trade domain, picking winners and losers, requiring joint ventures, all these kinds of things that we've been talking about, that those things were going to be wound down and that we were – ultimately headed toward more or less similar economic systems, even if there was no, um, there was no uh, expectation that China's politics would necessarily ever be like that of the West. What we've seen in the past year or two in particular, is that after a number of attempts to implement market oriented reforms during his first term, his first five years, I should say, in office, Xi, President Xi Jinping seems to have um, decided that the challenges of implementing the economic reforms that he brought to the table when he first came into power may be higher than he thought. And it might be more in China's interest to go in a divergent direction toward doubling down on state planning, the role of the party in guiding the economy, and other uh, approaches that are hard to square with the most fundamental tenets of the advanced economies today. So when I look at the range of issues that are on the negotiating table between Beijing and Washington right now, my eye is drawn most to those structural elements as they're called, which have to do with whether China's going to maintain the kind of guiding industrial policies that we talked about before, or commit to dismantling them. Not overnight, doesn't have to be delivered tomorrow or even in a short period of time necessarily, but I think ultimately there does need to be some assurance that we are headed to the same place ultimately. Uh, And not just because that's a concession by one side to the other, but because if there's not a like-mindedness about the desirability of having uh, that shared kind of future, then we're going to be at loggerheads over these kinds of things. There's going to be a lack of strategic trust in the relationship, I think, um, uh, you know, without, without foreseeable end. In terms of the consequences, if we don't get there, if we do continue to diverge and go in different directions, well, I think they're quite extraordinarily bad, um, a severe erosion of consumer welfare on all sides strikes me as um, the most notable um, element of uh, a failure uh, to resolve these these differences. Um, as each nation decided to go it alone and thereby, therefore would have to rebuild some elements of its supply chains and industrial structures to some extent, that might create a boon for uh, firms in many industries, but consumers are definitely not going to be better off. Technology uh, change and improvement is definitely not going to be better off if we break the world into rival spheres of technological standards, kind of balkanize things uh, in that space. Um, environmental degradation, uh, which um, at Rhodium we consider to be a uh, truly first-order uh, reason for nations such as the United States, China, and everyone else to resolve their differences and work together. Uh, uh, Environmental progress, um, the the outlook would be severely darkened uh, on an already quite worrisome um, starting point that we're at presently. Um, And of course, there'd be enhanced political risk, geopolitical risk, and strategic risk um, in many, many, many areas uh, around the world, I think.
0: Well, let's hope for the more positive scenario, but thank you so much for helping us to understand the complexity of the issues in the U.S.-China trade relationship today. We've been talking with Dan Rosen, who's a founding partner of the Rhodium Group and just a fabulous expert on the Chinese economy. Thanks so much, Dan.
1: My pleasure, Bonnie. Thanks for having me on.